Hello and welcome to episode number 62 of Future Chat from Unwind Media. Every week on this show, we aim to discuss all of the week's most interesting science and tech news. So let's do this thing. Before we start, this episode is brought to you by Audible.com. To help out the show and get a free audiobook of your choice, as well as a free 30-day trial, please do visit audibletrial.com slash unwind. They have more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. All right, guys. Uh, we got a lot to cover, so I'm going to keep this intro super short. Cool, because uh, I got to extend it just a little bit right now. I miss the days oh. when we could actually hear the music that was playing. I know, right? And Mike and I got to do like a little air drum solo and whatnot, <laughs> dancing. <sighs> yeah, those were the days. But now we have professional recording equipment. Uh, at least I do. And so <laughs> in order to do that, I have to buy more equipment and go line in and then line out of my computer to like put it in because I'm not just going to sit here with the phone up against the microphone anymore. <laughs> then I'd have to re-record it to make sure it actually sounded right in the final mix. <laughs> so you're just going to have to suffer with no music. Unless you, you could put the music on in your own head, on your own computer, but oh. couldn't do it globally. That's not a bad idea. That is not a bad idea. <laughs> Anyways, we do have a lot to get to today, so let's not, let's not spend too much time uh, reminiscing. Enough dilly-dallying? Uh, is that what you're saying? Exactly. So, uh, somehow, Mike and I both found different stories about uh, the first thing we're going to follow up on, which is the Hyperloop that we've discussed in episodes past from Elon Musk. Mike, do you want to tell us what, what you found out this week about the Hyperloop? This isn't so much a development or, or news about it. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with kind of conceptual drawings of say like an architecture development like you know a condo development or a new skyscraper that kind of thing usually they'll come up with renderings or or drawings of what it could or will look like um and someone i guess i think it was a group of grad students at the i think university of los angeles possibly um they put together a presentation on the different aspects of the hyperloop and what the structure might look like, what the vehicle, like the pods could look like, what the loading and unloading could, how that could function, and all that kind of stuff. I guess kind of a, a uh, thought exercise and kind of seeing if it's practical. And they, they actually came up with some interesting ideas and they even went so far as to talk about the improvements in travel times compared to uh, what you have now with either rail or flying or that kind of thing. Um, I think they compared it to flying, say, from L.A. to New York. And okay. they said, okay, well, if you had... I think they mapped it from L.A. and then down to Vegas and then up to New York. And then that was still faster than flying. Hmm. Um, I, they, I, a lot of the criticism was that they kind of were optimistic on the boarding and deboarding times as far as security and that kind of stuff. So depending on if they kind of stuck with what you have now with you say the subway where there is no real security as far as checking in and out per se versus an airline where there's you know an hour and a half long process to to get on wait for your plane load the luggage board and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff um, but if you have a chance there's you know a lot of pictures and renderings of what it might look like and I, th I think it's it's nice to see something more tangible than oh, hyperloop was that oh is it train that goes really fast like at least now you kind of have an idea that makes it a bit more real right 
Well, I was um, going to say, I imagine the security line boarding kind of thing would be a little bit shorter at least because it's very difficult to hijack a train. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, like that's actually one of the things is like, well, you can do a lot more damage with a plane than a train. Like, what are you going to do? A train to slow it down enough that it stops? Like, you can't just take this train and I'm going to Mexico. (laughs) There's, there's no track to Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) I did not plan this well. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, and yeah, and then the other thing is that say somewhere to bomb on, like you can just do that on the subway already. So it's not like extra security measures would do anything. So, right. Well, They've also said that in the whatever 14, 13 years since 9-11, the TSA enhanced security stuff has done basically nothing to prevent any kind right. of attacks on planes. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then, so this was the architecture group that did this. So it wasn't engineers per se. And, you know, they had a technical background, but they didn't go so far as to look at one of the things was their acceleration and deceleration times was like, I think, three or four G's of, right. of acceleration. Um, a little too wow. fast. Yeah, a little too fast. So, yeah, th- those are more finer details, but I think it's a good place to start and a fun yeah, thought for exercise sure. for sure. Cool. Uh, well, I saw a news story that was completely different and was more sort of the future of or the next step of of the Hyperloop in that we talked originally, it was probably almost three months ago now, about the conception of the Hyperloop and how it was, they were trying to get this five mile test track started and they've gotten, I guess, agreements in place to actually build this five mile test track. Hmm. So that I thought is pretty exciting. They're, they've got... I guess the plan's all drawn up. There was a plan for several stops in this loop as well as a bunch of housing. Uh, I think it was supposed to be solar-powered housing, like next-generation kind of communities. And so I'm pretty excited to to see that that's actually coming into place. Hyperloop is becoming real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of people see it as a very futuristic thing, like, oh, that's not going to happen for a couple hundred years or whatever. But... You know, it's like with smartphones, people couldn't have really dreamed of them 30 years ago. Yep. And we have them today. So I'd say don't don't count anything out. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, actual date of Back to the Future coming up is yeah. getting pretty close. Yeah. And I mean, they whiffed on a bunch of stuff like flying cars and things, but... And then in well, other ways, they whiffed on, you know, yeah. hey, supercomputer right here. Yeah. yeah, they whiffed in that they didn't really predict it at all because you couldn't have. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. I really have such high expectations of, you know, comedy drama writers. I guess what would you call that movie? <laughs> I think it's a comedy. Yeah, like a action sitcom adventure. Almost. Yeah, yeah. There are yeah. certainly comedic elements. Uh, Nick, why don't we jump ahead to your piece of follow-up about uh, GM? Oh, yeah. Uh, GM, Chevrolet, something? Anyway, uh, this follows up on our one episode where we talked about John Deere and how farmers didn't really own their tractors. And so I guess GM is now saying that, you know, when you buy a car, you buy the physical car but you're licensing the software and you're not allowed to 
play with the software or anything like that. And I guess there are some people who are very DIY oriented, like really want to do their own maintenance and stuff like that. And they're saying at this stage in the game, it's impossible to fully repair one of those cars without actually doing something with the software. And yeah, it's just more debate on who really owns your car. Yeah. So this was a, I guess it's an audio thing that people can go and listen to. Yeah, it was uh, an interview from day six, I believe. Right. Okay. Make sure to put a link to it. Did you? Was anything particularly compelling in that piece, or was it just sort of more discussion on the matter? That was a lot of discussion on the matter. Like, you know, part of the arguments are. Maybe you have someone who's out in the middle of nowhere, going to take forever to get into a major urban center where you can get repairs done, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Like you would just really like to be able to do it yourself. And I still think it's kind of ridiculous that you can't, but you know, here we are. Yeah. Well, a lot of the stuff we, when we first talked about, we were talking about, I think John Deere was another one that was involved. And so the typical case for that would be like farms where you're already not in an urban center. Yeah, yeah, and that they actually brought that up, saying, you know, like, these farmers are out of necessity in the middle of nowhere, and yeah. sure would be nice if they could just fix their own tractor, as they have always done. Right. I think a lot of this has to do with just, and I think we talked about this before, people not understanding how there is a division between software licensing and owning hardware, like in the computer realm, and because computer or because vehicles are becoming more and more like computers, like and more heavily reliant on the computer aspect, that now it's entering that world, and people are kind of like, oh, what do you mean I don't own the software? It's like, well, that's never really been a thing. Yeah, you know, when you buy an iPhone, you don't you own the phone, you don't really own the software, like. Right. You, like you, you, you own the right to use it, but when you jailbreak a phone, you're technically going against your licensing agreement. Oh, and sorry, that was another thing that came up because now you can jailbreak your phone legally. That is something you can do, but you can't do yeah. it with tablets. So it's just, <laughs> I, yeah, the situation has gotten a little bit messy. I think that particularly pertains to the states, though, with the DMCA. Uh, exception being made for phones, but not tablets. Ah, yes, that is what they were referring to. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I don't want to put WWDC, which happened this past week. I didn't want to put it in the main show, but I just wanted to go through not the announcements themselves, but I wanted to talk a bit about um, my experience the last week running beta software. I had... <laughs> oh, God. I have... It's this is a good general talking point, and it's also something that I'm actually been looking to write about. So I kind of wanted to bounce some some things off you guys. Cool. Um, so bounce I am away. a person since since probably 2011, 2010, 2011. I've been running beta software on Apple devices pretty consistently, and this year is no exception. So like the day of the announcement, I downloaded all the betas and and installed them all. And I kind of, I live with the fact that my battery goes down probably by about 70, 
75%, between 50 and 75% capacity. So it lasts me like five or six hours instead of all day and maybe day and a bit. I'm, I'm a heavy battery user anyways, and I have a battery pack for that exact thing. So it doesn't really bother me because I like sort of being on the cutting edge of things. Uh, I did, however, this time, now that I'm doing things, I'm doing advanced, uh, like I, I'm doing, sorry, I'm not advanced things, but I'm doing computer things that require certain software to be working properly. Like I'm podcasting every week, for instance. So when windows 10 came out in beta, normally I would be like, yeah, let's install that right away. Like screw my main windows system. I'm just going <laughs> to put this on there, but now I want to record this show every week. So I installed OS or uh, windows 10 on my other hard drive still on the same system, but on my other backup hard drive. So I have to pick between which one I want. And so with my Mac, I didn't have that option with my laptop. So I went for it. Like I always do. <clears throat> you didn't. And I partition? went to go and record. Sorry. You didn't partition. I only have a hundred and I have a solid state drive. So I only have 120 oh. gigs. Oh yeah. Okay. I was yeah. going to say, it's funny because most people get into like the OSX ecosystem because they want things to quote, just work. And Rob's like, yeah, but but what if it didn't just work? Imagine the possibilities. Well, it, it's beta software. It's my own fault. I wanted to try it out, and I wanted to see what was new. So I went to go and record my other podcast on Tuesday. And a- this is after installing the software on Monday, testing it out, seeing that it worked. And then I went to go and record on Tuesday, turned, like flipped all the levels on, turn, tuned the mics so that they were... They were on and everything seemed to be working fine. I was connected to the, it connected to my software or my audio interface and then just wouldn't record. There's some, there's some bug in some of the, whatever they changed in the core audio part of the Mac software that just didn't work <laughs> at all. We ended up having to delay about an hour to be able to find another laptop that we could record with. And it worked out okay, but it was really annoying. And so I'm going to have to wait at least a little while until I get either an updated driver from the audio interface people or confirmation from other people that it works okay or not install Mac software, uh, Mac beta software. But that being said, my phone and my tablet have both been on the software and it's both, it's, it's really good. It has, it's probably crashed about three times in the last week, which is completely to be expected. But I really like all the new stuff. Like there's a global back button now from when you go from one app to the next app, you just have a back button in the top left of the screen and you can go to the previous app like that. That's the thing that Android's had in the, in the term. In fact, they've had a, a hardware back button, but it's, yeah. well, it's not hardware anymore. Soft key. But sure. But I mean, it's, you can't dedicated, get rid of it. Can dedicated you? back button. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there have been a few things that I'm, I'm been enjoying testing out. There have been a few things where it's sort of like, oh, okay, this is, it's pretty similar, but I still like the the small stuff and I like being on the cutting edge. So it's worth this really, really terrible battery life. Yeah. Uh, another thing they did announce that actually has been particularly useful, specifically yesterday when I didn't, I left the house specifically as a test without my battery pack to go and see a movie and then go out for the evening. And so Apple has a low power mode that they've instituted, like system wide. They'll flip all the switches to make the 
phones save as much battery as possible unless you're trying to use it for a specific thing. Kind of like the Android one. Does Android have a global low power mode? Yeah. Yeah. Samsung ones do, and the new, uh, the Lollipop just came. The Samsung ones have had it for a while, but the Lollipop now has. When you're at, you can switch a battery saver anytime. But when you're at fifteen percent, it prompts you, "Do you want to switch to battery?" Oh saver? yeah, yeah. Okay, I do remember that. Or it just it on mine anyway. It just hard changes it to low battery when you're at 15%. And I really like it because if I suddenly realize that I'm going to be out for a long time without a plug around, it's just, I absolutely use it. It's great. Yeah. So big fan. Yours, you have yours set up to just do it anyway. It doesn't ask for permission. Sorry. Yours just does it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I'd rather it does it itself rather than run itself out. Yeah. Because right. I didn't notice. Right. But it's great that Apple's finally catching up to the freedom of Linux. So basically, what the... I mean, Apple... Just not biting, eh? It runs on Linux, too. There's no... (laughs) It runs on a Unix-like operating system. I know. Um, So so what I did was I immediately... I almost immediately switched on low-power mode as I was leaving the house because I know that it's already hard on the battery. And... What it basically made me realize is that all low power mode is, is like 2008 iPhone mode. <laughs> like it has apps and they all work, but all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that they've added to the system, all the lo- like real time location features in every app, like it just turns it all off. And it basically just brings you back to like the very first smartphone where it like you push the button, it opens the app, it loads everything, but there's no, I don't, I think it probably turns off LTE too. I don't have access to LTE, but like it, it does everything in the lowest power way possible. So it doesn't get any data in the background. Mm -hmm. It turns the brightness down pretty low. It doesn't do auto brightness. Like it's all these advancements that have come in, in later phones (laughs) basically just dials them all back, which is fine. It's, it made it made it last through, through the day. I spent basically the entire afternoon on low power mode, like afternoon and evening on low power, and I came home with five percent left. So it would have definitely died before that if I hadn't done that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's all I wanted to say on the on the Apple stuff. I'm interested in seeing how Apple Music shakes out. I've heard from civilians that didn't pay attention to the the Apple keynote like I did that Apple Music civilians. Are you not a civilian? Not in the sense that I watched the live stream. And no, like, I went. I watched. Rob's on the front lines. I watched it live, and then I watched it fighting again. against the ignorance. It's not ignorance. It is ignorance. It is. Yeah, it is by definition I, ignorance. In that you're ignoring it. Apple no, as things. in not being aware of it. No, well, I guess I guess so, but it's not a bad kind of ignorance. It's just like it's not willful ignorance. Yeah, yeah. This is out of my social caring about stuff. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Civilians. <laughs> Making sure that I can, you know, protect the general population for their from their own ignorance. Yeah. Allowing them Every- to know about appleiness and appley things. Everyone is ignorant about ninety nine percent of stuff and only care about the one percent of stuff that you can possibly like the human mind can possibly contain. Right. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't consider it ignorance. So everyone's a civilian about something. <laughs> yeah, for sure. 
civilian. <laughs> All right, let's get let's get to the real stuff here. Uh, we've spent long enough on follow up, Nick. I put the story first because I think it's really important. Um, Good. Why don't you Why don't you let me know about this this latest in sexism and science that's gone on? Well, I mean, feel free to jump in because I don't know a lot about it. I just have been generally aware of the whole. What, this guy's a Nobel laureate, Tim Hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Tim Hunt says that uh, women are distracting in the workplace or something like that. And yeah, in the lab. And I mean, my knee jerk reaction to that was like, how, how on earth can you have formed this opinion? And like yeah. with the distractingly sexy hashtag that came up, I was like, that was my first thought. I was like, are you saying like they're distracting because they're physically attractive? Cause like, the least possible flattering thing that you could wear is personal protective equipment. Yeah. <laughs> nobody looks good in a lab coat. I nobody looks nobody. good in coveralls. <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. Nobody. I'm Rob's like, I mean, I rocked that lab coat pretty hard. <laughs> just saying you can cut it up in creative ways. <laughs> do you remember the people from, uh, like especially first year that would walk around and pop the collar of their lab coat. Yes. As they were doing their laps. Distractingly douchey. <laughs> I was going to say that's they walk by and I'm like that, that is real commitment. They are yep. so committed to being a douchebag. That's truly <laughs> inspiring. The, the thing that I don't get about this whole story and I, I, I don't want to, I don't, I hope that I don't come off as sexist in saying any of this stuff because <laughs> this is going to be good guys. It is going to be good. What is wrong with like workplace relationships happen in every thing? Like, why is that a bad thing? Why is this guy not wanting people to get distracted by people being attracted to one another? We're all human. I just don't. Is he aware like, that like maybe there were gay scientists when he was working? Maybe. And maybe they were also attracted to one another? Probably. I don't think he's aware of that. Yeah, what was it? Like, the big risks are relationships and crying? Like, yeah. <sighs> that happens in every workplace. That's not unique to... I was going to say, I've, I have never seen... Like, maybe in the broad whole lab slash office environment. But I've never seen problems like that in the lab itself. Right. I mean, I've seen more problems with guys being loud jerks in the lab than yeah. Relationships so, and crying. What does Tim Hunt want to see happen? Does he want women out of the scientific workplace? I think he would prefer women only labs perhaps so that they're not mixed gender. Mixed gender labs. Like, like does he have God. an official stance on the matter as far as what he wants to see, or do you just make a passing comment about it? I think it was on the record type of comment. right. No, I but think it was passing. Did he, did he have like? Does he? I, I don't. I don't think so. I don't want a utopia of single gender labs yeah, where like nobody gets into relationships and nobody cries and and nobody thinks he's a giant douche. It just makes me, uh, I don't get, I, I understand that what he's saying is 
horrible because he's I think he's implying that women shouldn't be in like science labs because they're distracting. But what like I just don't see the problem with people sometimes being distracted from science. Like it's not about sex. It's about it's about male female attraction. Like that's how the world continues. You you don't understand why it's why it's a problem that people are distracted from science, Rob. That's why you're there, Rob. You are there to discover. You are there to innovate and invent. You're not there to cry and get into relationships. Okay, so hopefully I don't come off as sexist saying this. But <laughs> see, it's hard. This, to me, I can I can imagine that there are some women in any workplace and scientific workplaces being no exception that they would actually be fairly distracting and full of crying and relationship yeah. drama. Yeah. So is this is this more of like a not all women type thing? I think I think that it, it's a double standard type of thing. Like I have cried more than once <laughs> in a lab. I've had relationship drama that took place in a lab setting. <laughs> okay. It didn't necessarily involve two people that were in the same lab for me but i've i've had relationship drama unfold while i was in a lab and i know people who have been in a lab and things have happened i think it's it's more a people problem and not a woman problem yeah like i mean yeah like there are just some people that have relationship problems and bring it into the lab and that's not like a male female thing that is a person thing yeah like well and it's also not a science thing it happens in every workplace ever because it happens everywhere and i mean i feel especially guilty about this because i feel i can really be distractingly sexy in the workplace (laughs) and like like we, we we work with some really hazardous materials and i would just hate to think that while someone was busy staring at me in my totally flattering lab coat and goggle setup oh and even especially at uh Lakefield in a geochemical environment when you have to wear the big apron and the face shield too. Yep. Like how can you not just lose yourself for a moment and potentially harm yourself with these corrosive materials you're handling? Yeah. Would it be different if you were working in a volleyball, a beach volleyball stadium (laughs) where people are actually wearing potentially distractingly sexy outfits? Would it be okay to say, yeah, you're being distractingly sexy? I think that's been a thing. What? You're saying, oh yeah, PPE is totally sexy. Like, in a in a sarcastic way. Sarcastic way, way. But, right. yeah. But, is, but I don't think that's even the point. It is, but it's not. Even if they right. were choosing to dress sexily, if they were able to, not having to wear PPE, yeah. that still shouldn't be an issue. It's not, uh, yeah, that's the thing is that it's not an issue. But it should be. It's just a thing that happens. Right. It's not or it shouldn't be. It's not for me. Like, there there are workplaces where people, men and women, are able to dress distractingly sexy if they wanted to. Or distracting to some people. But that still shouldn't be saying, well, they shouldn't be here. Yeah. I I think they should, like, if anything, they should be there more. I was looking, (laughs) like, when we we talked about on, uh, on Facebook, the other day when you posted was it you or was it carolyn it was carolyn we we all talked about it i went and looked at some of the stuff that had been written about it and not buzzfeed but other places 
And like more women in the scientific workplace is awesome. I think like I for I I'm sure we're all in the same boat and that we're somewhat attracted to intelligence. Like seeing a woman all up in lab gear doing experiments, that is sexy to me. <laughs> Julia, take Take notes, notes Julia. I've Julia, seen Julia like d- starts doing a titration and like you know just getting a really good swirl in that Erlenmeyer flask exactly like, like mm, yeah and Rob's like why oh um, why why are you swirling it Julia and she's like oh you know I got to make sure to mix it so that I'm really sure of the endpoint here and Rob's just like oh my got a case of the vapors I have seen people in a lab setting both male and female using like working their lab coats, working their lab gear. It's not uh, for me. It's not just women. Like I've, I have seen a woman wear wear a lab coat very provocatively and I've seen men, like I've seen guys in lab looking what you would describe as like a sexy scientist, but it's a guy like it's not this cuts both ways. I think that's the point in all of this is that it's not a gender thing. It's just people are attracted to each other sometimes. I think I saw that costume at Valley Village one time. Sexy scientist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be just girls. It can be it can be women and men. So uh, uh sorry. Where do we I, leave this? <laughs> man, I got I had something and it's gone. I'm sorry. Uh oh. That's okay. If it comes back around, let us know. Yeah, uh, no, just sexy, distractingly sexy scientists. It's it's a problem. It's a real problem. It's a big problem. The, the way I see it, if we're going to conclude with this, is yeah, anyone can be sexy if they want to, and that's yeah. not their own. That's not their problem if other people are distracted. Yeah, it's are very sure? easy to because, focus on your work. Because I I feel like I got to dial my swag down, just for the benefit of the people around me sometimes. And I, I take that as a responsibility on me. Like, that's on me. Right. You know? Yeah. That's very sacrificial <laughs> of you, Nick. I know, right? I'm such a good person. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You guys uh, ready to move on from this? We, uh, we may get pushback on this, but I think that we covered it that fairly. people don't think women... Or, wait. From... No, no, no. Not that, not that anything we've said is a problem. That think that you shouldn't have relationships in the lab, or no? I think I don't think that anyone should could ever reasonably think that, except Tim Hunt, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think the takeaway here is that even people who are brilliant in certain area areas can be idiots. Yes, everyone is an idiot at something. Yay. So the next story I have here uh, fits very well into my all about that space episode theme. Uh, and this is something that I hadn't actually heard about it, to do with Saturn that uh, is just is really cool to me. So basically what's happened is or what uh, they've started mapping in more in very large detail, uh, an extremely large ring around Saturn. And they found that this ring that they'd known about apparently for a while, I hadn't heard anything. Like, I love astronomy and I hadn't heard anything about this. It's a ring that's like, it's, Saturn has rings, obviously. But this ring is 
apparently more than 200 times bigger around than Saturn itself. Like it, it completely dwarfs the planet of Saturn. Like the rings are obviously pretty large already. They're visible with, I think, uh, binoculars can let you see the rings on Saturn. But, uh, apparently as early as 1671, they had known or they had at least theorized about this big sparse ring around Saturn. And basically the equivalent that I have made from, from reading about it is that this is kind of like the asteroid belt to in the solar system, but on a smaller Saturn size scale, it's basically this very, very sparse field of small particles and, and probably larger stuff as well, but orbiting way, way out from from Saturn, they're saying that you couldn't, if you were flying through this in a spacecraft, you wouldn't necessarily notice it because it's so sparse. But if you, they've been trying to map it with uh, infrared light and finding that it's even bigger than they had originally thought. Like it's, it's, so it's both wider and larger. It's just a really big or a really diffuse accretion disk, kind of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I should before we go further. You first mentioned it's two hundred times bigger around, but it's bigger two hundred times bigger across. So you're, you you may have been off by a factor of pi if you use the around versus across. Careful, Rob. Two hundred times bigger than Saturn's, like the the other rings. Diameter wise, not circumference yeah. wise. You right. said around. Sorry, yes. Yeah. A factor of pi in this case doesn't really bother me being off by that much. <laughs> I don't know. Two hundred by times. pi is like. What happened to you, Rob? What happened to you? I mean, this is preliminary research, so... (laughs) I remember a Rob that would have been bothered by being off by a factor of pi. It's not even one order of magnitude. This is my incredulous face listeners later. It's it's three times off, not ten times off. An order of magnitude is... Orders of magnitude later... (laughs) I just anyway. keep talking when other people are talking. This is awful. <laughs> <laughs> An order of magnitude is a factor of 10. Yeah. So Why it's actually, it's three. only 30% bigger than they originally thought, though. Yeah. Okay. In terms they, of yeah. what? Size. Diameter, this circumference, area? Diameter. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I didn't really have much to say about that. I just think it's really cool. And I'm, I'm it- going to keep... Obviously, this is preliminary research, so I'm going to keep looking into it. Yeah. So wait, if they've been looking at it with IR, it must be... Is it gaseous? Yeah. Well, it's very small particles. There probably is some gas, but... Wow! I just yeah. clicked on that to see the picture of it. That's great. It's crazy. I'm assuming that's not, like... It's not a rendering or anything. It's, it's an artist's conception, but... Because, like, you see hydrogen in the IR range, don't you? Uh, I don't remember. Okay, so one relevant quote is density-wise, it says in the area of space about the size of a mountain, there'd be maybe 20 dust particles. Right. Okay, and in the journal Nature, the team says it was also able, or it also was able to get a better sense of what the ring is made of. Quote, most of the light we're seeing is coming from fairly small particles, dust grains. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Neat, but it's it's denser by enough to be considered different from right. its surroundings. Yeah, 
And apparently there's a moon that is flying through it, and that's kind of helping it stay together. That's no moon. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, so the next one here is also me, because you guys didn't have any stories that you considered important enough to merit uh, top billing. I'll You're right, it Rob. Billing. It's our fault. <laughs> it's definitely your fault. Blame the talent. <clears throat> So the next story I had here is, uh, again, to do, we've talked, I feel like I've talked a lot about dinosaurs and about space. And maybe I'm just thinking about a couple of movies that either have come out or are coming out rec- or soon. Um, Jurassic World, which I'm going to see tonight, and uh, The Martian, which is coming out in the fall. So, Rob, uh, I just, yeah. before you get too far into this, I thought sure. you said you looked at our notes. I did? The like section Nick's notes beside that story. No, I didn't look at that part. Yeah, I know you didn't. <laughs> because in that section, I said I would have absolutely shot this in there were it not for you. Okay. Well, that's so this, good then. This is super important. Not quite as important as Tim Hunt being an asshole, but. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, no, it isn't important. It's a very cool story. So uh, it has to do with dinosaurs. So they found it. They they uncovered a 75 million year old fossil. And normally what they do in looking for fossils is very little. They they sort of analyze it, but it's basically rock. And what they were able to do here is uncover uh, blood cells from dinosaurs, like not living or even remotely living blood cells. but um, this is the kind of thing that normally gets found in very, very rare samples under specific circumstances where they're able to be much better preserved, but they're not normally found in fossils. And so this is kind of, this kind of reads to me like it's a great way to look at dinosaurs the way we look at much more recently deceased species. Like it's a way to study them not just from the way they they looked, but physiologically how they're different from us and how they're similar to other animals that are alive now to sort of piece together their physiology, their metabolism, that kind of thing. Nick, did you, so obviously you saw this story, but did you, did you read anything into that at all? Um, not especially other than dinosaurs and dinosaurs are cool. So like I was, so excited about dinosaurs when I was a kid. And even now when I go to the Royal Tyrrell Museum, like it's just little five-year-old Nick comes out and I'm running around and looking at everything and all excited. So right. dinosaurs, that's exciting. Yeah. And I mean, I think some of this stuff is really neat. Like uh, three-dimensional examinations of the hum- the blood-like cells under an electron microscope revealed that they had nuclei, so human red, red blood cells could not have contaminated the sem- sample because they have no nuclei. Yeah. Stuff like that. I'm just like, wow. It's science. It's, it's cool that we know that. And this, these apparently were actually discovered in Canada. It's another cool thing because we have lots of dinosaur remains. Uh, I think mostly in Alberta and thereabouts. Yeah. Badlands. Yeah. So one of the things that they, they noted with from these samples is that they look very similar to bird um, blood cells and, and collagen was another 
bit of stuff that they found that was sort of better preserved. Yeah. Um, which they, they say adds to the credibility of it being um, from a dinosaur and not from a human in that it it's similar to birds and we already know that they're pretty close descendants. Um, but yeah, the coolest thing about this from from my reading of it is that it's really rare to find tissue in this good condition that's com- like not completely fossilized and and just rock. Uh, but this is a pretty mundane sample that is pretty fossilized. And they were able to use this weird technique that I hadn't really heard about using uh, an ion laser, or not maybe not a laser, but an ion beam to break apart the tissue and to be able to analyze it better. Um, Isn't that like what Maldi is? Is it? I forget. What, I forget all about the mass spectrometry stuff. I think they matrix. did use some mass spectrometry. No, I mean, it's matrix assisted laser dissociation ionization. No, I don't think it's like that. It's they're using a beam of ions, not a beam of light to ionize. Well, yeah, that's why I'm saying it's like Maldi. Yeah. It's not Maldi. Okay. Lasers don't have to be light, though. It can be gas. What's the first word in laser? Wait, what? <laughs> well,. Get, what about like a helium laser? It, that is light. Yeah, is it's it? light. It's all light. Yeah. How did you think that worked, Mike? A beam of helium light? <laughs> no. What? No, well, it's helium and neon that get excited. Oh. And so you're not actually emit. shooting helium out? No. Okay. No. <laughs> Sorry to Guys, I'm not a chemist, one. okay? Jeez. <laughs> Give me a break. Physicist? You studied physics. <laughs> not that kind of physics. How many kinds of physics are there? Like the drop a rock and what accelerate what velocity is it at the bottom of the mountain type <laughs> physics, not stupid oh. physics. Stupid physics. Yeah. yeah stupid physics. What have lasers ever done for anyone, really? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, okay. it's uh, Yeah, those are all uh electron transitions. Yeah. Gotcha. It's, yeah, it gives you the color, the wavelength of, of the light that ends up being emitted. It's Thanks great being a chemist. Up, it's great being a chemist because you know all kinds of stuff about all kinds of things, but it's really useless in most day-to-day it, life. Exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. so, like someone asks, like, I wonder how a laser works. Like, oh, I can tell you exactly how it works. It's like, wow, it must be cool knowing so much stuff. It's like, <laughs> it is, but you'd be surprised how little it pays. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Especially just the random knowledge doesn't doesn't really pay yeah. at all. <laughs> As Nick yep. can attest to. Yeah, I know an awful lot about an awful lot of things. Not very lucrative. Yeah. So, Mike, you got a story here about. I'm actually, I actually have no idea what this is about. But uh, <laughs> why don't you tell us about uh, this surveillance camera? Actually, I'm surprised you didn't come across this because. It was one of those, it was in the news and everyone got excited about it and but didn't really understand the actual implications of it. Because the headline was, Wi-Fi can power things, like okay. in a wireless charging type sense. But they weren't taking into account how little like voltage it actually was giving because their Wi-Fi signals is not 
you yeah. know, like a 120 volt AC type power. Um, but they've basically developed an antenna that can pick up the Wi-Fi signal and convert it to like usable electricity to power like small sensors. And okay. the application would be in the IoT uh, type applications where you really only need to power a small sensor or memory chip or that kind of thing. Um, so not like a full device, but in this case, they, they actually were able to power a small camera uh, that yeah was able to run on its own. So you just attach it to a wall within, I think they were able to get within nine meters of a Wi-Fi transmitter okay. and still maintain uh, usable power. And what they had to do is they had to actually modify the router because the way routers work, I guess, is it's more of an intermittent signal. It's not a sustained uh, EM signal. So in order to so provide enough sustained power to charge or power this device, you had to kind of jimmy three different transmitters together and where one or two of them send out just noise. So an EM signal is essentially just for power while the other Wi-Fi part still sent out your normal Wi-Fi signal you'd use to access the internet. Um, and the noise was able to kind of provide enough additional power to power this this small camera. Um, hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's promising, again, like a more of a proof-of-concept type thing where it's like, yeah, this can be done, and to start looking at other ways to integrate the you know, with the chips that might be in like a dishwasher, that kind of thing, without having to, um, maybe not a dishwasher because it has its own power source already, but just things that might not have its own power source, but still be able to get powered by the Wi-Fi signal you already have in your house. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's specific, specific numbers in, in the, uh, as far as the voltages and that kind of thing. But yeah, they're like, milliamp type level yeah. power requirements. They're not they're not you can't walk around your house with your phone and have it be charged by your Wi Fi signal. That's kind of the whole point. Yeah. But I think a lot of people saw oh Wi Fi powering whatever and like, oh nice, I can just have it power everything in my house. And it's like, well no, it doesn't really work like that. They did say they were able to use the router to charge a jawbone uh smart yeah. band. Overnight, like two and a half hours they said. Well to forty percent, yeah. But I assume that was right next to it, not nine meters. Well, away. yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah. That's the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say you probably could power everything off your Wi-Fi. I just really hope that you have some specialized equipment for that. Yeah, that's one. And two, I hope you're not paying your own power bills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if Wi-Fi is transmitting all the time, that's going to be a big waste of power. Yeah, when your well, EM you signal want- attenuates. So yep. quickly that you need a yeah a fairly high powered transmitter. Yep, it's definitely a proof of concept. Like I'm reading here, it's 174 by 144 pixel black and white image. Yeah, it can take every 35 minutes. Yeah, that's like the most it can do. Yeah, so it's definitely like it's we can do this just barely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like that is super useful. It's like. You can't check up on anything, really. No. It's more like, has anything collapsed dramatically in yeah. the last 35 minutes? <laughs> you, might, you might miss a sloth wandering through the frame at that rate. 
But see, they they also mentioned that you could you could trigger it or set it up so that it takes a picture when it senses movement. Right. Right. So it's like, it, you, in that case, you just you'd see the sloth as it entered the frame, but you wouldn't see anything <laughs> could else. Could you though? Because because like a motion sensor actually requires power. True. And I don't know how much power this thing can actually deliver. Yeah. That would be tough. You'd have like one pixel that can detect a, ch- a certain change in contrast. And then <laughs> if it detects that, it's like motion, go. <laughs> yeah, it's like check up on your, your uh, Wi-Fi powered security camera. Nope. Everything's fine. In reality, it's been burning down for 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> you get the picture and it's just, uh, just charred wreckage rubble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, it's a great proof of concept and it's cool. I'm, I'm interested oh, to see neat. how wireless power goes, but for the time being, it seems pretty, pretty rudimentary. Yeah, I know we've talked a couple times about true wireless charging before, and I, Rob, you've taught, you've brought it yeah. up a couple times. What type of transmission was that? That, that was, just, was. It wasn't Wi-Fi, obviously, but no, it was uh, induction. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. A big coil of wire shoots out yeah i guess fairly fo- not focused but uh targeted directional yeah signals uh so the next story i have in here is literally like it came out this morning so i haven't there hasn't been much of a chance to to talk about it but i wanted to get maybe look at uh some of the next moonshots that google is going to be trying uh so for people who have not been Wait, this is not... I saw That's, this this morning, but it says... That one's mine. Dated. Or I had is that story. Where? Mm-hmm. I don't see it. I'm Anyways. Uh, this is dated June 10th, but I only saw it this morning. Uh, Google has started another new company. Like As we've talked about in the past, they have Google X that we've talked about. We had an entire episode about Google Y. We talked a bit about Calico, their health-based... Uh, so they've started another new company called Sidewalk Labs, intended to push forward sort of the infrastructure and everyday uh, sort of community things that technology could improve. So, Mike, you said you you did see this. What did, what did you find sort of most compelling about the possibilities of this? Well, it, it wasn't. It was they're using New York as the project. Uh, focus i guess and i think the whole idea is to just generally improve day-to-day life for the average resident of a city yeah so it's like you know yeah they're doing all these moonshot projects and you know super techie type things but it's like how can we make the lives better on a day-to-day basis for everyone is i think it's kind of along the same lines as their was it like the google city Stuff. I don't know if it has a specific project, but there was like the city of the future that they set up. Did they set it up or did they talk about setting it up? Or they talked up? about it at least. And yeah. they, they talked about what they'd have in it and whatever. Right. But this is kind of like, well, this is the, like, what can we do for the city of the present? Right. For the people in it right now. Um, yeah. I don't know what the scope of, of the project is, but it's, it's more just a focus on, yeah, just improving the lives of people within our, our urban areas. Yeah, I think a lot of the a lot of it has to do with efficiency. 
they're talking a lot about energy and how to use less of it in in a sort of community and a city type environment, making transportation more efficient, which we have discussed many times before. And I think that that's something that they could definitely handle trying to. I mean, humans, especially when it comes to transportation, are pretty predictable. We tend to have pretty regular patterns. And so I think technology could do a lot to make that a little less terrible. For instance, like in rush hour traffic, just if we all did, if we all sort of agreed to do things a certain way that's different than what we do them now, yeah. like um, trying to get kind of staggering leaving work, like not most people work nine to five type of hours or somewhere in that neighborhood so you have a mass rush into downtown areas for nine o'clock and a mass rush out at five if you could stagger that better it'd probably reduce a lot of congestion that you see during rush hour yeah i actually have a story for you guys last night we were driving home and driving down glenmore for those of you who've driven on it it's a fairly major major road you know, three lanes, three lanes one way, three lanes the other way. Mm-hmm. Coming into downtown, it goes from three lanes down to one. It closed two lanes for construction. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and then That's immediately awesome. after that, you have another merge lane off of McLeod onto Glenmore coming that same direction. So you're essentially going from four lanes down to one. That's right. that's what your your merging is. And Coming after that, I'm like, damn it, why don't we have zipper merging? Because that would make way more sense. <laughs> yeah. So I'm that experience made me a believer in zipper merging because it's like, yeah. oh, that was painful. I sat in that traffic for like half an hour. Or I mean, go, if only like, the C train had a viable line to replace that. <laughs> if only. Or just Stony was connected to my home that direction. Because that well, minute commute would turn into twenty. <laughs> I was going to say I I am actually serious. I don't think that the C train goes to where you would need it to go. Does it? To Cochrane? No. Oh, Cochrane, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well then, <laughs> yeah. Get the C train to go to Cochrane, guys. God, it will we get need a there. Cochrane stop. We need an Airdrie stop, an Okotoks stop. We do. Oh, seriously, we do. It's most of the way to Cochrane, isn't it? By now. Uh, getting there. Yeah. It's in Tuscany now. Yeah. Yeah. So I was in traffic yesterday on the, on the topic of zipper merging. One of the biggest problems with that type of merging is signage. And that's the kind of thing that I think Google, Google could probably do well, or a company that has that kind of data on traffic already. Uh, so our highway that I was on is Usually between three and four lanes, depending on where you are exactly on it. But Which highway was this? This was the F- Queensway, the 417. How do you um, not know that? What do you mean? I don't I don't really know the official names of stuff. I know what I you know mean. It. I did know them until I started driving myself. I was going to say, like, it's, it's the 417 that goes directly through Ottawa. I wondered if you'd gotten out of the city somehow. But it's the Queensway, right? I guess. I was just deciding which name to, to use. Anyways, um, so there was there was construction, and there were a bunch of signs as you come up to the construction that say that it's basically just a big right arrow, but it gives you no information as to how far down that happens. 
and it gives you no information as to how many lanes it is going to narrow down to. So for a long time, as I was coming up to this traffic, it seemed like they were going to go down to one lane. And so I got immediately, like I wanted to, shortly after I, it seemed like the construction was going to be ending, I needed to turn right. So I didn't want to be in the leftmost lane if there were going to be more than one lane open. But I also didn't want to be a jerk. So I was like, all right, I'll get in when there's a gap pretty quickly. I'm not going to wait until the last second and then try to force my way in. And so I got into the leftmost lane and then it never actually got down to one lane. So it was, it was very misleading because like there were signs that were saying go to the right when there were two lanes, but it wasn't actually closing. So I think that's kind of the biggest hurdle is signage to make people aware. Like, for instance, in one kilometer, just have like, there are signs that have the big right or left arrow and there are signs that say you know this road is going to be closed from this time to this time but like you don't have any combined signage that says like go right because in one kilometer this is going to go down to two lanes like it's <laughs> it's pretty easy to convey that kind of message in not too much in text but it's really ambiguous if it's just like arrow to the right you just kind of drive and hope that uh that things are going to work out so i think that's the kind of problem that google could solve is putting up having kind of movable uh modular signage that you could deploy to give people more specific instructions about what kind of construction is going on or what kind of road delays you might expect i think we just need the solar freaking roadways (laughs) i was gonna say i um i was also in traffic yesterday Except I wasn't because I was in the bike lanes on 12th. Yay. Yeah, that was that was pretty cool. <laughs> Although I did experience a traffic-related problem either Thursday or Friday. I was biking home on 9th, which is four lanes one way, mm-hmm. going right through the middle of downtown. Suddenly, I looked up and noticed a problem. And so, you know... As cyclists are supposed to do, I looked around, I signaled my intentions, and I moved to to take the lane because there was an obstruction coming up on the very right-hand side of the road. That obstruction was another cyclist going the wrong way. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. In the bike lane? There's no bike lane in that section of 9th. He's just going the wrong way down four lanes of one-way traffic (laughs) on the left-hand side of the road. Like, well, his left, everyone's right, because it's a one-way street. Right. That's crazy. Honestly, the the most problems I've experienced and actually, like, had just a moment of panic is other cyclists or pedestrians. The cars are usually pretty good. The cars usually figure things out. Yeah. Like, there was another guy who was just blazing he was turning on a red too which was just stupid and he like almost clipped me because he was cutting through all the lanes of traffic yeah i'm sorry this is not at all on topic but (laughs) no it kind of is though because it's the kind of thing that i think technology can help can it though can technology cure stupid (laughs) (laughs) it could try It can definitely try. I'm going to say yes. Yes, it can. Okay. Um, but yes, we, we can move on. So the next story I have here is from the, the Philae Lander. 
which we I, I believe we talked about. I don't see how we could not have talked about it, but if we talked about it, it was probably last fall. Uh, it's the lander that landed on a comet. Uh, it was part of the Rosetta mission, was the whole thing. And basically, <laughs> it did a slow-mo bounce off the the comet's surface and then ended up in some kind of uh, crevasse where it wasn't lit. Crevice? And- I can pronounce it however I wish. <laughs> uh, so it, is it that the French way? <laughs> yes, it, it probably Voltage. is the French way. So it ended up in a spot where the sun couldn't get to it, and so it's solar. It's solar powered. It had a backup battery, but that was not designed like it was designed to be in the sun, so that it, the sun could power it. And so they were just basically sitting there because they didn't know exactly where it landed after it bounced. They've been waiting for months trying to hope that it would come back online as it got closer and closer to the sun. And now it has, they've just received communication from it. So it's back online, which I don't really have anything to talk about with reference to it. I just thought that was really cool. Like it, I first heard about it this morning that it had come back. So uh, we're going to start to get, I guess I don't actually know if it was programmed to do any data collection that it didn't, wasn't able to relay back to us before it went dead. Hopefully it'll start giving us more of the data that it was designed to give mm-hmm. from the comet. So is it that it because it landed on the comet, right? Yeah. Yeah. So did it just orient itself so that the sun was facing it? Now is that the idea? I um, think the comet probably yeah. oriented in such well, a way that the sun that's was visible. What I mean, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just moved the comet. It's like, dude. I need these panels to pick something up. Come on. Yeah. So it, uh, apparently it also tweeted, which is exciting. Uh, although I guess this probably is the, the team and not it. Like it's not designed to, to tweet itself. I was kind of for a brief moment. I was like, that's cool. It, it had this way to send out an automated message. Um, that would be the best way to it really would you know do public outreach is just have automated things tweet yeah like if the Mars lander was tweeting yeah. just well, itself automatically yeah exactly that it would be really cool like analyzing data and it's just sending back sending out tweets so the great yeah. use of NASA's interspatial bandwidth for sure definitely well it's yeah. 140 characters come on <laughs> it can afford it <laughs> uh I think the coolest thing about this is, is that this is kind of, it, it, I mean, it is brand new science. We haven't landed a, an actual lander on a comet yet. And A, they didn't know why, they didn't know exactly why it shut off because they didn't know exactly where it was. Obviously, it didn't have enough sun, but they don't know necessarily why it's now back on. They're not like, they're not, they have no confirmation that it has got any more sun. They're just like, oh, it's back. It's sort of like a coma from in a human where you're like, we don't really understand why people go into a coma and we don't really understand why they wake up when they do. And we're seeing that from essentially a robot. The filet lander will uh, 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 find a way. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure the lander has some sort of luminosity sensors that tell it how much sun it's getting. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, but it's got to like whatever adjustments you're going to make has to be powered somehow. Yeah. So when it went dead though, did they see the luminosity like go to zero? No. Not that I'm aware of. 
it just stopped. They were oh. like, we hope that it, cause they can, I think they can see the battery level, but they don't, they don't necessarily see how much sun it's getting because okay. they didn't know exactly where it landed. They had some ideas. They had a sort of narrow range where it could be, but they didn't know exactly. Just because it's out, like it's, <laughs> it's communicating with a satellite orbiting the comet that is then communicating with the earth. What if what if the extraterrestrial just kind of like readjusted it? Maybe. Although it seems weird that it like this is a comet that routinely gets very close to the sun on a regular orbit. So maybe unless these uh, extraterrestrials have the ability to survive blazing heat and like depths of space cold. Well, it's time. living on the comet, you, so it must. Have you ever come across like a child's project and just gone Oh, you've clearly screwed this up. Here, just let me just let me fix this. There, there, it'll be fine now. Maybe that's what an extraterrestrial did. Yeah. They just like came up to like, oh God, humanity, <laughs> you're trying. You are just oh, here. You go. Yeah, there. That must. Be and then it. walked off before the fillet lander woke up. Yeah. Even if, although even if it didn't, even if like there's no, as far as I know, or I don't think there is a camera on the actual lander. There's a camera on the satellite. Right. So, and if certainly it wouldn't be taking pictures all the time. No. So the alien could still be just sitting there behind the camera. Yeah. We'll never know. Uh, okay, Mike, you have a story here again that I don't really know that much about, but <laughs> I'm excited to hear it. What do you know, Rob? My stories. Um, you make sure the just... civilians like us will know what happened at. <laughs> WWDC. Exactly. <laughs> That's what Rob knows. So you guys are familiar with the concept of virtual reality and augmented reality. Obviously, we've talked about it on more than one occasion. And one of the new devices they've come out with is a set of headphones that allow you to both, I guess, allow you to record in 3D. Okay. Uh, so you kind of get a first-person experience of where audio is coming from. Uh, so as you're recording, your virtual reality is picking up the audio that you're experiencing at that time as well. And it can even do like a live streaming type thing. So you're, you have this camera that's recording what you're looking at and then your audio that's picking up sounds and recording it in 3D as well. Uh, right. And then so you're kind of getting a full immersive experience so as you like turn around, your the sound kind of the same way that the Hololens. If you're looking at a TV and you like look away, you hear the sound coming from here instead of in front of you if that's where it's facing you. Yeah. Um. So it's 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 called open ears, and uh, yeah, it lets you record, share 3D video and audio, uh, live streaming as well as just in audio files as well. Um. But I think it's it's just I thought it was cool to see these types of things come out to complement and kind of coincide with the the new virtual reality and augmented reality systems that you're that you're seeing either already out or, or being developed. Um, and I think you know, kind of going back to the was it the Google field trip or school bus project where mm-hmm. they get the uh, the virtual reality that students can wear and having that and having that audio go with it as well, that'd be just the coolest experience, I think. 
Like, right. So the first thing that I notice on opening this link for the very first time is that, man, that is a misleading headline. It is basically a straight up lie. Because it's not 3D video, it's 3D audio with video. No, I know. The, the video part, I don't know why it talks about video. It, well, it, it, say, it connects to a GoPro, so it, it syncs the audio and video. Right. No, but, that's, that's what I was saying. Yeah. I don't know why it says recording 3D video. Right. It's that, just 3D audio to go with the video you're yeah, recording. Exactly. Which, yeah, exactly. It, it's cool, it's just not, yeah. it's not 3D video. And I, you gotta I wonder, is that, like, is that malicious, or are they just... Not it, really understanding what's happening. Could, yeah, I think it's probably more likely they're not really understanding. <laughs> or they just didn't, they sort of saw the word 3D and they're like, oh, 3D video. But yeah, there's very clearly only one GoPro camera. Yeah. I actually read a science story with a very misleading title this week, and I was considering making it part of Future Chat. But the title was so misleading. I was like, <laughs> you know what? No. <laughs> Whatever small amount of traffic I might generate from this, not happening. No, Good like, yeah, this, this whole thing is just to record the auto that goes with whatever it is you want to pair it with. So if you happen to be recording 3D video for, like, a virtual reality type thing, then it would work with that. If it's just with straight up regular video, then it works with that, too. Right. The whole point being that it, it picks up the sounds that you're hearing for later listening from whoever's watching that video that you're recording. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. So this is a Kickstarter project. Did you mention that? Uh, I don't think I did. I think I read that, but I forgot that that was. So if if you if you like this idea, we'll post a link to this very misleading headline article, yeah. and then from <laughs> there you can find the Kickstarter. Or I suppose we could just post the the Kickstarter page. I'd be fine. We'll with just that post too. the regular link. The Kickstarter link's in there too. Yeah, but I don't like that. I'm not going to give them another click for the headline. Okay. Was there anything else you want to say about that? I'm just posting the Kickstarter. It's cool. <laughs> it is cool. Wow. It, it definitely is. Even if that uh, Android community doesn't uh, either doesn't know or is trying to make it sound cooler than it actually is. It doesn't, it doesn't need to be cooler. It's oh. cool enough. So Nick here, you have a story here about uh, security again. I do. What's going on? Um, so you might recall that uh, after the, well, during the whole Edward Snowden kerfuffle, uh, he was, or still is in Russia? Yeah. He Where is he right now? He's in Russia. Still Russia. So it turns out Russia offering him asylum might have been a strategic decision on Russia's part because the United Kingdom has noticed that a lot of their key intelligence assets have been either, I guess, threatening, being threatened or disappearing. So, yeah, the UK has pulled its spies from, quote, hostile territory in Russia and China hmm. because it appears that Snowden's files might have been cracked by uh, Russian intelligence. That seems both equally good and bad. It's interesting because how do you even figure that out? Like, yeah. And it seems like one of those crypt- 
cryptography things like where, I mean, it doesn't matter how well you encrypt a file. If you've got it open and someone else looks at it, it's like you've got it there. Yeah. I wonder if in confidential files or encrypted type stuff, like, like intelligence, they kind of plant information in there, similar to how map makers will do it. So that if, say, the UK sees, you know, whatever place broken into, they know that someone found a file that indicated that was a sensitive spot when it's not. Right. But they know that that file's been compromised. I'm sure they do that to some degree. I'm almost certain they do that. Yeah. So it it is very interesting because there have been a lot of ramifications in the States with people sort of becoming more aware of what the NSA is doing. Um, But we haven't seen, at least I haven't seen a lot of international repercussions, but it seems like now it's sort of, affecting a lot more world powers and we might see we'll probably yeah. see more people sort of getting upset with Snowden himself and him getting in even more international trouble than he was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is also a very diplomatic and verbose way of going, "Uh oh. Uh oh. Yeah. Something's happening." Yeah. Except in the UK, it would be oh dear, oh my, something's happening. Oh, <laughs> for, for everyone saying that Snowden committed treason against the states for leaking the documents, at first I was like, well, kind of, but not really. But I think if he's bringing intelligence over to other countries and they're starting to use that against other countries, I I'd say that's fairly treasonous. I don't think that was an intended action, though. Right, but it happened. It doesn't seem like he's working with them, though. Well, and I mean, he's that's there. why we differentiate murder from manslaughter, because... <laughs> well, Nick's, Nick, isn't your speculation that Snowden's working with Russia? No. Oh, what were you I'm saying? I'm saying, like, he has his files there, or I, I assume he has stuff there. And Russian intelligence has picked it up somehow. I mean, it's all public, isn't it? It's not like... He's not keeping it secret. Didn't he... Oh. Now I'm betraying how little I know about what's actually happening here. Um, (laughs) Did he have the encrypted thing? Or is his stuff still encrypted? Or did he release the fully unencrypted stuff? Uh, That's a good question. I'm not sure either. Because if Russian intelligence picked up the encryption key then all of a sudden they know a bunch of stuff about what's going on. Right. But I mean, how did, if he didn't put out the unencrypted information, how did all of this stuff become public knowledge? Like all the documents he leaked. Wasn't the stuff that he leaked was heavily redacted. Okay. When he picked and chose what he released, I think. Yeah. 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 But he had like, he left like his doomsday switch or whatever, which was the whole thing, but encrypted and a bunch of people downloaded it. Right. But I mean, without the key, it's not really crackable, I guess. So I'm wondering if they've gotten the key somehow. Right. I mean, it it sounds like you're salaciously saying 
he gave them the key, but I don't think you are saying I'm, that. No, I'm not yeah. actually saying that. Uh, it says here that the report from MI6 says that Russia and China cracked the encryption on the files. So that kind of corroborates what you're hmm. saying. Yeah, well, I mean, I just think it's a consequence of him physically being there with his stuff that... It's possible. Like, they've cracked it, potentially. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah, for sure. But I don't know, because, like, there's so much technology involved here, and well, in terms of cryptography and computers. Yeah. But, like, I... I remember hearing, I can't remember whether this, whether this was just in a novel or something like that, but you can kind of figure out some conversations by measuring how windows vibrate and figuring out what the, like what sound waves induce that vibration and pick up like some parts of conversation. Okay. Like if you could do stuff like that, I don't know. Could you remotely figure out what Snowden's up to? Yeah. it's a good question. I mean, when John Oliver interviewed him, like the, Oh, uh, I mean the modern day KGB, whatever they were, they like Russian intelligence services were like, Hey, just, just heads up. We're watching you. Yeah. Yeah. Which has got to be the creepiest feeling. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I think that's the kind of thing that again, we'll have to sort of watch as it develops. We don't really have future follow up. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, so the next story I have here is a, another space space story, which I again thought was incredibly space. cool. Um, mostly because sort of the, the most imminent and probable thing that could happen to human society is, um, like if a coronal mass ejection from the sun breaks through our magnetic field or we get, a, they get a really powerful solar storm that could just fry all our electric grid and basically throw us back to the stone age. We have to start from scratch rebuilding all our, like basically the entire internet or most of it. Um, and so what they've been trying to do right now, they basically have a one hour advance notice that um, like a solar storm, a solar storm has taken place and there might be a coronal mass ejection uh, that has sent sort of solar material towards earth that could, cause this kind of um, electrical storm on earth. And what they've been working on with help from NASA is trying to up that one hour advance notice up to 24 hours advance notice. Because at that point, if you have confirmation that there's a powerful solar, solar storm on like on the sun's surface that is basically shooting all this stuff at earth, then we can start to take steps to power down our electrical grid and kind of, try as best we can to protect the grid from this kind of storm. But you don't want to be doing that unless you're sure it's happening because that would also have huge ramifications on say, the economy. That is a huge amount of effort to go to. Yeah, exactly. Powering down an entire electrical grid. Yeah. So is that, and I, I don't really understand how exactly this works, but is that something where if you go home and turn everything off, your stuff will be okay? As far or, as I understand, if the circuit, unless it's only really can overload the circuit if the if there's complete circuit going. Oh, okay. So it's like you can induce currents and stuff, but only if it's you know connected. Yeah. 
Because there's that one solar storm they figure or they found out about because, and this was like 1800s, I think. It was someplace in the States and they actually noticed weird things happening in the electrical grid yeah. and they powered everything down and we're like, nope, we're still getting a signal. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So basically what they've done in this, in this article, what they, t- they're talking a little bit about the techniques that they go into to forecast the storms and they've been testing their methods, their predict prediction methods, and it's showing pretty good agreement. Like it's showing good agreement. Uh, even up to 24 hours before the actual storm happens. So basically what they're trying to do is predict how, from looking, just looking at the sun with the number of different satellites that we have that are basically trained on it at all times, looking at the data from that and trying to figure out what kind of process is going on, basically the sun's weather, what kind of weather on the sun's surface would cause it to sort of eject some kind of material. Mm. And so far, they've been showing that this is, it's pretty solid. And they're basically now trying to go back into past events where there have been ejections and looking at what happened leading up to it to see if the the model that they've come up with still actually predicts yeah. um, past events. Yeah. Because right now, they, they essentially just rely on detecting the CME. Yep. They don't they basically they don't, see it. They don't predict. Yeah. So this is going into... They might do some prediction, but yeah, like you said, they haven't nailed down or hadn't nailed down. It's not accurate. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, you mentioned like, it's like weather, but space weather is an actual thing that yeah. a lot of scientists are, are working on and looking at, you know, daily or hourly, depending on, like you said, you know, for satellites, it's it's fairly critical to, to kind of make sure that they're still functioning yeah. with what's happening up there. So, um, yeah, it's. Like yeah, those apparently they had a fairly large uh, coronal mass ejection that they uh, that happened back in like the early 1900s that we didn't have any of the the satellites going that we have today, obviously. Yeah, and it would have shut down the grid in that sense if we had those types of facilities existing, but because we didn't, then just you just had pretty northern lights, I guess, but nothing actually happened on the electrical sense because none of that was there. But it's the kind of thing that shows, well, that kind of stuff can and has happened. Yeah. Like the really serious ones. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy. Like in, in the kind of work that we do, like with just any sort of navigation equipment that relies on the magnetic field for for navigation, you're going to have, you know, attention being paid to that kind of stuff because... Yeah, like you have your magnetic declination, but when you have a solar storm, the declination doesn't behave the way that your your model says it should. Right, Obviously, exactly. The field's getting distorted, so. Yeah. The The nice thing about solar storms is that it takes light from the sun eight minutes to get here, but it takes actual matter from the sun about a day or two, depending on the the, <laughs> the ferocity of the ejection, to arrive. So. We do have some help in that regard, but there are also some particles that come out of the sun really quickly. Like yeah. I think neutrinos are one of the those. Yeah, they come out super fast, and as far as I know, they don't do a lot of damage, but they sort of give us a, another look into what's happening uh, with solar storms and what kind of things go on. Uh, 
Okay, so Mike, you, the next story here, you have a story about what is it? Nano raspberries. I'm very intrigued by this story. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know. You actually haven't heard a whole lot about fuel cells recently, uh, but I yeah, I came across this story that apparently there are still developments being made with fuel cells. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they came up with it's it's essentially a catalyst for the fuel cell process that uses platinum. Uh, raspberries they call them because they're just kind of little balls kind of like clustered together like a mm-hmm. raspberry and when you include it into the, the fuel cell process it speeds up the reaction and makes it more efficient uh, and it capitalizes on the, the increase in surface area with the platinum raspberries um, but the the whole thing is that the material itself is, is very expensive so it's not practical for for widespread use in just kind of uh, consumer-grade fuel cell use, I guess. So the, the developments now would be to find similar catalysts but that work on the same principle of the increased surface area and have the nanostructure that, that mimics the way this one behaves. Okay. Um, but, I don't know, it's, it's interesting because everyone's focused on the, the electric, you know, battery storage and or solar even, but fuel cells, I guess, are still kind of in the works as far as development and trying to see it as a viable alternative energy source um and i guess fuel cells i think generally still use hydrocarbons they're just not being combusted right they're just the energy is being stripped from the fuel it's kind of yeah imagine imagine a battery but you just keep putting fuel into the battery that's basically how it works. Yeah. You will get the combustion products just at a much lower temperature usually. Right. Oh, so you still get carbon dioxide? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. It says here that um this use this process uses water as a solvent. Is that common in electrochemistry, Nick? Yep. Okay. They um, describe it as kind of green, but if that's <laughs> if that's not rare, then it seems kind of strange to use that. Well, I mean, it depends on what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, obviously. But, yeah. I mean, this is, I was going to say, this is our this isn't news portion today. But, like, um, this is a huge field of research, or at least it was. I mean, trying to get the most surface area out of your platinum that you possibly can. Okay. And so like, is that's what, um, that's what my research project at NRC was. It was a core shell electric or, uh, electric catalysts. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in that scenario, you have ideally something in the core, just a metal, core nanoparticle and then you put a couple layers of platinum on top of that so you get as much out of your or you get as much surface area out of your platinum as possible Mm. okay but yeah i mean this is neat the what you usually run into with stuff like this is you get something with an incredibly high surface area and these images are actually really cool they look a lot like what i ended up getting Except okay. this is platinum instead of 
like I would see that kind of pattern, but it would be purely activated carbon or something like right. that with little spots of nanoparticles on them. Okay. Um, the problem you usually run into run into with things like this is that you get incredibly high surface area, but it's not often stable. So as you cycle it through what you would be subjecting it to, it tends to collapse more and more. Yeah. But I mean, it depends on what you end up getting out of it. I've actually uh, been to a conference where they talked about similar sort of idea thing and they were using platinum kind of dendritic structures. Are you familiar with dendrites? Yeah. At all? Kind of like these specific ones were kind of snowflakey looking things. Okay. But they were actually really promising because you got incredible surface area out of your platinum and they were also stable for a really long time, like thousands of cycles. Right. Where some things like this can end up collapsing in, you know, under a hundred cycles. Okay. This one quotes eight weeks stability at room temperature. That's, that's really good. Yeah. But I remember coming to my supervisor with something, some research thing like this. And I was like, hey, this is really cool. What do you think? And they're like, that is really cool for a few cycles. <laughs> Yeah. Cool. Is that it on on that? Uh, then can we move to our our final story of the day, of the week? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the story that I have here is again about space because apparently that's all I care about this week. <laughs> space. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to Bill Nye's latest project, uh, the Light Sail. I have not actually. So this is exciting. Yeah, so basically what it is, is he has taken, or he, I guess he, he's in, he's, uh, I forget what, what position he exactly holds in this, uh, in this group, but he's in, he's heading up the, the technology to try to deploy, to use light as sort of the, the wind, like literally using the solar wind to power a sail to, to propel, to propel spacecraft. Uh, so basically what they've done is they've now launched a satellite up into space that has a sail. And then they've now, as of earlier this week, they deployed the sail. So it's uh, it was something like more than 100 square feet of sort of reflective metallic coating to propel this uh, this tiny satellite and to try to keep it in a stable orbit. And this has apparently been a really long time coming that they've been trying to get this to actually work. Uh, I think there were a couple of failed deployments or a couple of failed launches earlier, but this past week they finally uh, got it to actually deploy the light sail. And they were saying that it's kind of, it's not fully deployed. It's kind of almost stuck in a, uh, what would you call it? Like a pre, pre full deployment, like kind of a tent before you've, stuck the poles through like it's open but it hasn't reached its full size um so they're they're happy with the progress but it's sort of like the the falcon thing the rocket project from elon musk in that it's kind of touch and go they're trying to iterate on the design and they're trying to this isn't necessarily the final product but they're they're very happy with 
with what's actually happened. And apparently one of, one of the cool things that I've read about this is that amateur astronomers can actually see the light sail as it goes overhead. I think it's probably, I think it's similar to the ISS and that it's every hour and a half or so. Um, I just think that's so cool. Just seeing, being able to, again, being able to see science as a civilian, being able to see astronomical science overhead just by looking out through a pair of binoculars, through a telescope or something like that. Um, yeah, that was, that was the only part of that news. If you guys, if you guys didn't even see this, you should probably go in and take a look because it's really cool. I was going to say it looks neat. Mm -hmm. Like it's one of the things that they've been looking into for longer distance space travel is using actual photons to propel you forward using a light sail. So it's cool because obviously they don't have a lot of, they don't have, they, they have no mass, but they have momentum so they can actually push you because there are lots of photons coming from the sun. So you get quite a bit of momentum over time. If you use a light sail, mm. it would also let you kind of direct yourself better than some other systems that they've come up with for long distance space travel. Well, I mean, it's essentially free propulsion at that point. eh? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, it does get weaker as you get further away from a, a light source, like a star. Yeah. But it's really cool. But I mean, so does, so do all our man or, uh, all our propulsion systems. They get worse over time. Yeah, it's just exactly. Why would ion thrusters get worse over time? Well, we don't have ion thrusters yet in space. No, we do. Do we? Yeah. Which, what it, kind? I haven't, I always thought that was. A, I think it's a xenon source, but you put it through a parallel plate accelerator and it shunts you forward. So why would that get worse over time? Or is that one of the exceptions? I was going to say, cause you would eventually run out of your xenon store. <laughs> But, or okay. your or the power source for your parallel plate. Sure. I don't think running out of fuel counts, but Yeah, I don't think running out of fuel counts either. <laughs> Why not? No, it's not like it's not like with light with light sail where you're getting further away from your source of wind. It's you mean that, you're you're running out of the thing that's carrying you forward? But you're not running out of it. The sun is still the there. Sun. You're just getting as you get further away it gets less efficient at actually moving it further forward. This that's not the case with fuel. You just have less fuel. I think I yes, get what they're, saying. they're technically different, but it's <laughs> affected. Like you end up with the same effect. I guess so. I'm with my guess. So <laughs> I mean, they'll both eventually stop over time, but you understand what we're saying though, right? Like with, with the, yes. In that the, running out of like a ship on the water, running out of diesel is different than a sailboat when the wind stops. But this isn't the wind stopping. This is you getting further away from the source of wind. That's like saying, uh, if you had a fan on the coast that was the, your source of propulsion with a sail, as you get further away from the fan, you get less power. Like that's what I'm trying to say is that this is like with the, with the light sail, you get a gradual decrease until you're so far away that it has no effect. Whereas with a fuel source like in ion thrusting, the way you're talking about, it would be continuously running at the same power until you run out of fuel, and then it would just stop. Or coast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't mean I mean stop propelling it further forward. Yeah, yeah. I hope that makes sense. 
yeah, I mean, I I get that there is a difference. Yeah, that's that's the only thing we're saying is that that is the difference. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what Science if, what is if about exactness, Nick. You can't just be inexact. <laughs> Not doesn't fly here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> what if? What if? Use solar sails, and then when that ran out, you started up the ion thruster. My God, makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, effing brilliant. <laughs> All right, well, uh, thank you guys for listening to this week's future chat. I'd like to thank Audible.com one more time for helping to support the podcast. And if you want to help us out, you can do that today by visiting audibletrial.com slash unwind to start your own free 30-day trial, as well as to pick up your free audiobook. We'll be back here next week with more science and tech talk. You can find past episodes of the show and more at unwindmedia.com slash future chat. See you guys next time. Bye. Ow. So are we doing after show or what's happening? Do you guys have any stuff to talk about in the after show? I've got my liberal agenda. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I knew there was something. I just forgot what it was. I was before we move on. I was going to suggest for the solar sail that if you just sent like a flashlight up with you Ooh, and just like perfect. shone it on the sail, like ignoring conservation of momentum, free energy, it, it should work. It should definitely <laughs> work. <laughs> I don't know why they haven't tried that yet. But. What? Well, what if you just like leave the flashlight behind you? <laughs> Just drop off flashlights every couple miles. <laughs> it's like dropping breadcrumbs. Yeah, and you're getting lighter in the process, so you're actually getting more efficient with your energy. So it seems yeah. pretty inefficient. Yeah. Eventually, humanity comes across like, why the hell is there a trail of flashlights? <laughs> what idiot? Uh, yeah. So, Nick, what's your liberal agenda? What's My liberal agenda this week is a small L liberal agenda. Oh. Um, you remember, I think it was last episode, I said that the Liberal Party of Canada had released a Stand Up for Science petition. Right? Yes. yes. Well, the NDP have released their Standing Up for Science petition. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Because of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as a scientist, I'm happy that the progressive parties agree that, you know, we actually should be paying attention to science and it's important. Yeah. Now, what is a stronger action to stand or to be standing? Well, you see, here's the issue. The the Liberal Party... They want you to stand up for science. <laughs> the emphasis is on you. But the NDP, they are standing up for science. I guess they're already like on it or yeah. something. And they're saying to join them. But but are we standing or are we joining them standing or are, how does that it's, work? Maybe we were supposed to watch them stand. Maybe. Okay, because like that's that's an interesting thing. Like, are you joining the NDP? Are we like getting together and going with the NDP? Are we just going to let the Liberal Party tell us to do it ourselves? <laughs> Look in the mirror, bunch Canada. Of, bunch of lazy hooligans. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I like it. It's a good page. It's a good I page. Will. 
Yeah, they're. Uh, oh, the stand. Did I not share page. the link with you last week? Yeah. Uh, I don't think you did. If you did, I didn't. Okay. I didn't go look yet. Well, I don't think you did. I will go ahead and just put this in the chat window. You sure. have a whole subdomain for petitions. That's pretty easy to do. <laughs> it's pretty easy to set up a subdomain. How many petitions do they have? The NDP. Yeah. Like a lot, as far as I know. Looks like it. But yeah. So I mean, I, yeah. As a scientist, it's great. But if you're the Liberal Party, it's like, could you get some of your own ideas, maybe? They changed the <laughs> verb tense. That, that is true. They did. They did. <laughs> and I mean, the Liberals also tried to pass a bill in Parliament, which just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. To unmuzzle scientists. This is some really weird think, web design. I don't think the NDP did that. Yes, he says, Tomble Cares New Democrats are standing up for science. That, that's a very actionable thing. That's true. They They're are. telling us to stand up. They're already standing. That's like, we're just reading this and laughing at it, but I'm sure this is actual strategic thought at play. Oh, of course it is. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, the NDP want your phone number, too. <laughs> well, who doesn't want my number? Who doesn't want your number? <laughs> Yeah, that's true. The NDP wants your phone number, but the liberals don't. They want your name, postal yeah. code, and email address. Yeah, I was signing up for like Maria wanted this coupon from American Eagle the other day. I'm like, oh, you get like a fifty percent off coupon if you sign up for our American Eagle Club. I'm like, she wanted me to do it, so she got the coupon. I'm like, okay, fine. Like, oh, you know, name, email, phone number, phone number. Why do you need my phone number? And they want to like my home address too. And I'm like, yikes! What do you guys want? Like, just email's fine. Like, geez. Yeah. So I gave them fake phone numbers and address, but oh, good. Yeah. <gasps> I I don't know why I'm more okay giving out my Is email. Is that it's fraud? Easier to like delete it. I don't think technically that's it wasn't fraud. fake. It was my con- condo address and phone number that I don't live there anymore. So right, you still own it. No, I don't own it anymore either. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, I sold that back in like February. Oh. Yeah. Good follow so up. Someone else is going to be getting junk mail, I guess. Addressed to me. Suckers. Okay. <laughs> uh, did you have any more liberal, ag- liberal agenda points? I don't know. I just. That is interesting, it's, though. It's interesting to go over, like, everything and see the slight differences. Yeah. And they are slight, it looks like. Actually, I'm saying they're slight, but. They're actually very different. Both of them have three actionable points, but one's a lot longer than the others. Okay. Anyway, I'm sure we can post this and people can go yeah. voice their support to science potentially twice. I'll probably do it twice. Oh, and uh, another note that I completely forgot about until just now. I think I was skipping the episode where it happened. But uh, July 31st, or June 31st, was Superfan Nastia's birthday. May 31st? May, May 24th? Oh, that's right. It was May. Right, because it's only June now. <laughs> I'm so silly. It was the week that we did... Um, we did the show on Friday. 
Yeah, and it was me and you that did that show. It was the 31st of May. So thanks for listening. So happy belated birthday. We did wish her a happy birthday on her birthday. Did we? not in the show. Oh, okay. Because it was Friday that we recorded. Oh, good for us. Yeah. We're so nice. I know, right? Let's just pat ourselves on the back one more time. We appreciate all of our fans and our listeners. We really do. I think they're smarter and more attractive than the average person. I think that's how that works. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Distractingly so.